0: Thank you for tuning in to listen to this sermon from The Ville Church. To find out more about us and our weekly scheduled services, please visit TheVille.Church. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. This is the first line in this book that you might have had to read in high school, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And Oh, got some Charles Dickens fans in the house. Did y'all read it when it came out in 1850? (laughs) No? Okay, that's cool. Um, But it's also the name of a podcast um, I listened to going to Louisiana last Wednesday, and it was nine minutes long. It's a podcast called The Moth Podcast. They tell stories, and they're usually really interesting. And in nine minutes, this man I knew nothing about, he told a story. And from zero to nine minutes when it was finished, I literally cried for 20 minutes in my car. And I'm not a crier. That's not because I'm real manly. It's just I have a trouble cry. But it was like the saddest, craziest story from, from nothing. I was happy-go-lucky. You know, I was in like Biloxi, Mississippi when I heard it. And then all of a sudden it was just like I couldn't stop crying. It was so sad but so real and gripping. And what's weird, it was, it's also a prelude to what happened in Louisiana. So some of you might know this, but for the past few months, I've been training for this track meet, okay? So I'm 32, that makes me a master. Not at something, it just means I'm old. And I get to compete in these master track meets. And um, I went to Louisiana and it was, uh, we, we competed at Baton Rouge and at LSU's campus. And it was awesome. And it was terrible. Um, So let's start off with the good. Why it was awesome. So I got to see, well, the track meet itself, I ended up winning my event, which was awesome. Uh, I decided this morning I wasn't going to wear my medal, gold medal, while preaching. I put it away with my mullet and my pride. Um, But... I won, and it was crazy, and like I'm walking around this track meeting, and people are like, hey, national championship, cool. I'm like, oh, yeah, it is kind of cool, I guess, yeah, that's, that's kind of cool. Um, it, was, it was awesome because I got to actually try hard at something. It was awesome because I got to see friends from Baton Rouge, because I used to live in Baton Rouge for about nine months. I saw some friends in Mississippi, and I mean, it was great. But at the same time, it was awful. Know why? Because I wasn't happy that I won. I really wasn't. And the reason being is I also, not only did I want to win, I also wanted to get the status of All-American. And I missed it. And what's even worse is I missed it probably due because of the weather. There were lightning delays, and we had to run portions inside of the pentathlon. And that means your times are slower because the track's shorter, and so just being really frustrated at that, which is really weird if I pull myself out of it and think, who's not happy winning a national championship of something? Me. I was really upset, and I didn't even want to celebrate, and I was angry because I didn't reach a certain level and a certain status. And it was, it was also the worst of times because while I was seeing all my friends and it was great, And I had alone time to myself, five days. A really weird thing happened. And what happened was I didn't want to spend any time with God. So when I was stripped of my titles, whether it's pastor, husband, um, father, friend, and I just got to be by myself with God, I didn't really want anything to do with God. I wanted me time. But yet I heard him, like, whispering and calling, like, hey, let's spend time together. And I was like, nah, I'm free. I'm good. I'm going to spend this time with myself. And it was really hard. Like, to be honest, when I was driving home this past Sunday, um, I was, like, warring with myself in the car. I was, um, I was with God feeling so helpless because something different was happening. I was alone with my thoughts, trapped in a car for eight hours, in the rain, so I couldn't even pull over and do something to distract myself. I, was, I couldn't even turn on the radio or hear anything because I couldn't hear it because the rain was so loud. So I'm just stuck facing, who am I and what is happening here? Um, and I was forced to admit that, man, I'm not in a great place with God. If you strip everything away out of my life and all my obligations, I didn't want to spend time with them. And it got me thinking about this week. Um, I was like, if all of us had the same thing happen to us, if we were stripped away from our church community, if we were stripped away from the titles that we have and the responsibilities we have to others, and it was just us and God, who in here would say they have a thriving relationship with God? Like, they're really excited and really um, just pumped to spend time with God. And who would even say they have a decent relationship with God? Or even an existent one? And that's kind of where I want to go today and what I want to talk about. Because most likely, all of us are kind of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in this regard, right? Right? We have this persona in public, this persona that we craft and we we show that we're good Christians. We do the right thing and all this stuff. But when you take away our family and friends, when you take away all that stuff, when no one's looking, I feel like for most of us, our hearts actually drift away from God. Um, so then on Monday, I read this parable uh, from Jesus and Luke. And it just struck me so much. I'm like, okay, I don't even know where this is going and how it's going to fit in with something different. But I think this is where I want, or I don't even think I want to sit in this six-verse parable and really think about what Jesus is trying to say. And I want to preach on it. So it's in Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is what we're going to be working through today. I'm going to read it for you guys. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, robbers, cheaters, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. Um, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, let's pray. Lord, these are your words. Um, This isn't just words that you gave another human. These are your literal words from your mouth here on earth to tell us something. So help us to give um, them the credibility that they demand and give them the attention and the thought of God speaking to us something. Help us to see it. Help me to preach it. And help us to know your truth today. Amen. All right, let's start with the first verse, verse 9. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. This parable is for me. This parable is for me. And it's told to people who think that their actions provide evidence of their righteousness, and then despise others who fail to meet those same standards. Okay? That's who this is told for. And it's actually a really hard thing to admit, because I'm not admitting that like, hey, I'm going to be the example, and I'm going I'm to take the fall, guys. It's like, no, this is actually true, and it's so true that I don't want to admit that that's true. Um, and it's so hard to admit because it's so ugly. It's so ugly ungospel but i really find myself doing this and the way i know i do it is because thank god i have a wife because she's the one that actually lets me know when it's happening otherwise i would be completely blind to it um she she exposes me in this more than anyone else in my life all while receiving the brunt of the effects of it and still chooses to stay with me and even walk with me in it, even though it's only hurting her and I can't even see it that well. I mean, this is why things like marriage are so amazing and why I'm so just thankful that we've been married for the five years now this past Friday. So I just want to say thanks to my wife and... This is where the rubber meets the road. We're not talking theoretically anymore. We're talking about specific sin that hurts other people, and yet they take the brunt of it and still love you in it. Um, So this parable is for any believer, any believer whose pride in their own actions is actually matched by an equal contempt for others. So not only are they like confident in themselves, but they also by way of that, look down at other people who don't meet the same standard. So two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, um, the other a tax collector. What makes a story like this actually hard to understand for us is that we have hindsight. We, we kind of know a broader story. And we know that Jesus, he ate with tax collectors, right? And that he despised Pharisees, or that's what we think we know, and he rebuked uh, Pharisees. Um, so we already kind of hear the word Pharisee and we look down on them, And we hear the word tax collector and we're like, oh, yeah, come on, tax collector. And we have sympathy for him. But the real question is, how were these two men perceived by the listening audience? When Jesus was talking, how would the audience have heard who these two men were? Because at the time, Jews, like, admired Pharisees for their serious commitment to the faith, and they viewed tax collectors as these backslidden upper class traitors. So, this is this is really important for us to to kind of dive into. So, who is a Pharisee? They were the Jews who were faithful, who were dependable, who separated themselves from the rest of society because their observance of the God's law. They did the right things all the time. You know, we might refer to them today as super-chrish. You know, like they're super-christians. My friend in Louisiana says super-chrish all the time, and I can't get that out of my head. But these are the super-christians. Jewish society would have viewed them as all-stars of their faith. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Because the New Testament actually views some Pharisees positively. Like uh, Nicodemus, or um, even... Paul, when he converted, like, there's sympathy for tax collectors because they're not all bad. Because what they're doing isn't bad. It's the motives behind what they're doing, which is wrong. So it's it's not as easy as, like, Pharisees are bad. Now, on the flip side, who are these tax collectors? What, What is a tax collector? So they're more of, like, the moral equivalent of lepers, all right? Their actions make it to where nobody wants to go anywhere around them. Um, And there's a few reasons for that. First, who in here likes to pay taxes? Who in here gets excited when they get a paycheck and they have to bounce 20% out instantly before seeing any of it? Okay, that doesn't make me like happy or excited. But now what if you had to do that to an oppressive regime? Like what if you had to do that Because we were owned by Russia. And so not only were you going to pay your own government, you're actually paying another government to be over you. Because that's what the Jews were doing with the Romans. So they're taking their hard-earned money and giving it to a foreign oppressor to rule over them. So they're definitely not excited about that, right? The second is the tax collectors were Jews. They weren't even Romans. They were Jews who were working for the Romans. So um, they were traitors. They decided, like, I'm going I'm to go work for them and collect it from my own people. And it's like, instead of fighting against the Romans to get them out, they're working for them to, to come in and do their bidding. Which leads us to our third thing. Tax collectors not only took money for the taxes, but they took even more money and skimmed some off the top for themselves. So, and there's nothing people could do about it because Rome ruled over everything. So, they would collect more than required, skim some off the top. I mean, Zacchaeus confessed to Jesus he did the exact same thing. And because of this, lastly, the reason is now they're rich. They're rich. So, imagine being a lower class Jew, okay? You're, that's most Jews at the time, a lower class Jew. How would you feel about a traitor of your own people helping this oppressor while robbing you of even more money and then stuffing their pockets to live this lavish lifestyle in front of your face every day when you walk past their mansion. I mean, these are hated, reviled people. They're hated. And that's kind of the context of the story. There's a contrast here. There's the religious all-star and then this Backslidden traitor, thief, and these are two people Jesus brings up at the temple talking about what he's about to talk about. So in people's mind, they know who the hero is and they know who the villain is, and it's important because we tend to think as a Pharise- of a Pharisee as this like venomous villain, and a tax collector as this you know generous Wall Street broker or uh, the good-hearted prostitute or something that we're like rooting for, and. We can't do that because if we think of one the Pharisee as a villain and the tax collector as a hero, then they both get what they deserve in the story. But that's not the point of the story. What they receive in this parable is in spite of who they are, not because of who they are. So does that make sense? I know I took a long time to explain that, but I think it's really important to understand the parable. So now let's get to these prayers of these two men Because they're even more at odds. And they contrast more than even their social standing. Okay. So first the Pharisee. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed. God I thank you that I am not like other men. Robbers, cheaters, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now I can actually resonate with what he's saying a little bit. Um, We definitely should thank God when he protects us and guides us away from certain things. God, thank you that I'm not a heroin addict for the sole reason of the consequences that brings on myself and the people I love. Thank you, God, for steering me away of not being a, a sex trafficker, okay? Or, or some, I don't even know, uh, CEO swindler where I'm cheating so many people out of money and oppressing people through finances. Like, Thank you, God, for not letting me be that. So what's wrong with what this Pharisee is saying right here? I see at least four things. The first one is is how he says this prayer. He refers to himself five times in two verses. He is the main subject of his own prayer. He's the main subject of his own prayer. And as the main subject, if you were to ask him, He's doing pretty good for himself. He's doing pretty good for himself. He's thanking God, but maybe God should be thanking him for his service. Because he's doing all right. Um, And the thing is, what he's saying is not untrue. He's a champion of the Jewish faith. I mean, the Jews were required one day a year to fast. um, The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And this dude does it twice a week. They were required to give, like, tithes, a tenth of their income. But this guy gave a tenth of everything he received. So a tenth of his T-shirts, a tenth of his peanut M&Ms, like everything. He gave it all because he followed the law to that extent. So the problem, though, is when he speaks, who in here is actually warmed by, by the love of God when you hear this godly man speak. I'm not. Which brings us to our second issue. There's a glaring difference between his love for God and his lack of compassion for others. It's really interesting if you look at it. His righteousness actually drives him away from others. How do we know that? He's standing by himself. These temple prayers that they used to do in the temple they'd actually say him out loud, okay? So imagine him saying this out loud. I thank God I'm not like even this tax collector. The man is in his presence, and he's in his prayer pushing this man even further away from himself. He's separating himself from him. Um, so not only is he physically separated, he's verbally distancing himself even further, Which leads to our third issue. He has no real sense of his own sinfulness and unworthiness before God. When you can't see your sin, you can't appreciate God's grace. And when you can't appreciate God's grace, you automatically view yourself as better than others. And this is the root problem that we have today. It's the root of all racism, sexism, classism, elitism, everything. Not being able to see our own sinfulness and unworthiness before God. You know what? I'm guilty of that. I really am guilty. And if we're truly saved by grace, if that's true, which we say it is, then it levels the playing field and we're all in need. And no one can ever be superior to anyone else because it's only by God's grace that we're saved. And that's the truth. That's the truth of the Bible. But we don't live our lives like that. See, we're all sinners and we're all in the same desperate need to be rescued. And if grace doesn't lead to grace, then it will turn out that it wasn't actually grace at all from the beginning. So forth he's lying. The Pharisee is lying, whether he knows it or not. He's lying. He's saying he's not a robber, but he's robbing the honor due to God alone. He's saying he's not a cheat, but he's cheating this tax collector out of knowing his worth and value as an image bearer of God, right? And he says he's not an adulterer, which is probably literally true, but is he not departing from the true God by claiming he doesn't need to that he, He's claiming he doesn't need what these other men need, which is actually the worst kind of adultery of all, cheating on God. So this whole prayer, in my view, should be, should be a case study of how Satan traps religious people into a false spirituality. That's how, this is how Satan does it. He makes you drunk on pride in the lovely and sweet sound of your own voice and the beauty of your phrases that are sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. You love hearing how good you are. You love talking yourself up. This Pharisee lacks any sort of repentance. And it reveals a heart that's as hard as Pharaoh's. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. So we're at the temple. That's, that's the um, context of the story, the setting. They're at the temple, and imagine it's prayer time. Uh, I think back then they, they did public prayers at 9 and 3 every day. So a large crowd gathers, and we have two people standing separate from the crowd for opposite reasons. One's standing separate because he believes he's too good to stand with others, and the other standing separate because he believes he's too bad to stand with the others. And I'm not saying this is like our church, but it's like when the people at some churches walk all the way to the front row, sit down, no offense, down here, uh, kind of look around, make sure everyone saw them come in the door, that they're good. They're sitting in the front row. They're taking great notes. No offense to note takers. And, uh, but like, these are like, they, these, these are the people. They're distancing themselves. They're like, look, I'm in. But then you have the other people who barely come in the back, sit in the back, head down, don't want to talk to anyone because they don't even believe they should be here. They don't even believe they should be here. They don't, they, they hover around the door to exit really quickly because they don't feel worthy of being seen. And, and for some, actual you know good reason because they're ashamed of their sins because sin is bad and like this guy they're they're ashamed of themselves and they look down because they don't want to see what other people are looking at them as as outsiders and outcasts and they're looking down because they don't even want to look up to God because they feel the shame of their sin and here he is beating his breast And what does this phrase mean? Because it's not actually ever said in the Old Testament. But there's a Jewish historian that said, uh, he described David when he lost his son Absalom, beating his breasts, tearing his hair, and doing every kind of injury to himself. His heart, it just aches, and he's clenching it, and he's pounding his chest. He's just so overwhelmed with his unworthiness before God. In his despair, he just says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. In a lot of translations, it says a sinner. But the actual original language, it says it's specific, the sinner. It's like he's saying what Paul said, I am the chief sinner. He's not saying generally he sins. He knows his sin and saying me, personally, I am the sinner. He sees his sin before God, and he's crying out to God. But this picture right here is not of a man who has low self-esteem. It's, it's of one who is actively repenting before God. Be merciful to me. It, what that literally means is be propitiated towards me. And propitiation is one of those big Christian words, Right? Maybe some of you heard it. Maybe some of you haven't. Maybe some of y'all just fell asleep when I said that. But perpetuation, it's a big Christian word, and it has to be big and unique because of the nature of what it's trying to describe. You can't say it in simple words. So the magnitude of what's being described here is perpetuation is a two-part action. Okay, So it involves satisfying the wrath of an offended party and also being reconciled to that party. Okay, so what this tax collector is saying right here, when we just kind of glaze over God, be merciful to me, the sinner. What he's saying is, God, is there any possible way you, God of all gods, would remove your righteous wrath from me against me for the things I have done against you? And also, would you then accept me? If you forgive me, would you accept me as your own? Both and, not either or. This man is desperately seeking a new relationship with God. It's not just a God, a theory. It's the God of the universe. He's crying out, asking to be rescued. And what a contrast from the Pharisee, right? This Pharisee is known. He's the hero of the Jews. And this man is without community. This man is without acceptance, he's that, he's without self-respect he's probably without love of any kind and if you're in that spot what else can you do but cry out for mercy and this is what jesus said i tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other the pharisee for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalt- exalted here's the irony of this whole passage Remember, the Pharisee declares he is distinguished from other people. I am not like them. But Jesus actually declares that the tax collector stands in a class by himself, not like the Pharisee, which flips everything upside down. So, two people went up to the temple to pray, but only one of them actually prayed. There's only one prayer. Because when you have no merit to stand on before God, like the tax collector, you cry out, right? You plead, you you pray to God. His prayer is one of absolute dependency on God's mercy, period. And that's the truest form of any prayer. In his prayer, in the tax collector's prayer, he's repenting. He's saying, please take me. And Jesus declared the tax collector righteous. He declared him justified. Because our God is full of mercy for those who repent. And we know that, right? If you've been a Christian for a while, you know, like, our God is full of mercy for those who repent. The problem is we don't actually repent. We don't repent. Because repentance requires humility. And humility is this very rare thing in our society that loves to brag about our uniqueness and our merit and our skills and what we're doing. You know, we're in a society that constantly, we're constantly trying to prove ourselves against others. Constantly trying to show why we're worth, why we're worthy and why we're valuable against others. So pride comes when you compare yourself to others. That's the truth, because you can always find something that you don't do that they do. And then you feel, okay, I'm justified, I'm good. But it's, it's pride. And humility takes actually a sober look at where you stand. And its comparison is against the standard of God himself, the character of God, which everyone fails. No one can live up to that standard. So who are you comparing yourself to, others or to God? Because if it's others, you're going to eventually be prideful. And if it's to God, you're going to be humbled you will be humbled. And so God is the bar. Others are not. And we like to look at others, though, because we like to lower the bar to make it easier to jump over to feel righteous about ourselves and feel good about ourselves. Because we want control. We want to be worthy. We want to show ourselves and prove ourselves as worth something. So when you hear this story, when you hear this parable, you know, who do you see yourself in? I think that's an easy question to ask about the parable. Who do you see yourself in? But if we're honest, we don't want to admit that we're either. Like, no one wants to admit being the sinful, alienated, traitor, tax collector, and then no one wants to admit that they're the prideful, removed, hard-hearted Pharisee. There's not a good option to be here. Okay? Both are not great options. But this is what I was discovering this week. The problem is... I have the worst traits of both. I have the worst traits of both. I have the tax collector's sins, and then I think I'm as righteous as the Pharisee. I'm the worst kind of person. I am the worst kind of person. I don't do what is good or right, and then I lie to myself and view myself like I do. Is there a worse type of person? Because that's me. But the story also points to the fact that Jesus Christ is the best kind of God. So while I'm the worst type of person, Jesus Christ is the best type of God. Because he does everything right. And he does everything good. And then he doesn't distance himself from us who don't. He actually comes to us from heaven. And he stands with us on earth. And he stands us, bearing the weight of our sin on his back on the cross. He stands in our place. And the thing is, Jesus actually came for the worst of sinners and the best of pretenders and everybody in between. He came for everybody. But the scariest thing to me about the story is only one went home justified. Only one Went home justified. See, God's love is not earned. We know this. We cannot, well, we don't know this. We cannot do anything to justify ourselves before God. That's the nature of sin. Once you're a sinner, you are separated from God. But God's love is freely given to those who are conscious of their need for it. And their unworthiness of it. And those who ask for it. Those who come back to God and realize They can't do it, and they need God to do it. And it takes a repentant heart to come into the kingdom of God. It takes a broken heart to repent. And it takes an honest look at your shortcomings and your sin against a perfectly, holy, amazing God to be truly brokenhearted. So today, that's why I'm begging you guys Take an honest look at your standing with God. Take an honest look at your standing with God. Because this is why this is so scary to me. Because this story is supposed to be this great story, um, but it's really scary to me. Especially being in ministry. Which, if you're a Christian, everyone's in ministry. Pharisees, there's a lot of them that don't get justified. Because they don't see their need to repent. They don't see their need for a savior. It's a really scary thing. It's a really scary thing. So today I'm asking everyone here, do you need God's grace? And it's not a theoretical question. Because any Christian would be like, yeah, duh, I need God's grace. So let me ask again. Where exactly do you need God's grace today? Specifically? Are you playing a Christian... Or can you say with all sincerity, God, have mercy on me, the sinner that I am. So even today, when we take communion, I want all of us to come before God in prayer and actually repent of specific sins in our life against God. And for those people who came in today feeling like the tax collector, feeling like shamed, and what, this is an amazing opportunity to rejoice knowing that God gives forgiveness to sinners. If you repent, if you, if you call out to God, he answers. But for everyone else who's just living their Christian life, just going along doing it, it's going to be really difficult to name actual sins and not just make something up off the top of your head to have one, right? To actually know what, what, it, what are you doing that's driving a wedge between you and your relationship with God, Where are you distant? Where do you run to? It's probably also really hard to admit that you're a Pharisee. Because that's the title that no one wants to, if you're a Christian in today's grace-filled society, you don't want to be named a Pharisee. That's like the ultimate Christian insult to another Christian. But such is the life of a Pharisee, and I should know. Because we are Pharisees. So, Are you a Pharisee like me? I'm going to ask you some questions to try and help you think through this before we take communion. Do you ask yourself, what have I done to deserve blank? Like, that you've been doing so great that you don't deserve any of this. What have I, God, what have I done to deserve blank? Are you really good at pointing out other people's sins? while minimizing, ignoring, ignoring, or totally being oblivious to your own? Is it hard for you to name your sins? Do you believe, even spread, accusations against others without ever going directly to them? Something that you'd insist be done if you were being slandered against. Do you, do you talk about other people to people like you know what's right and wrong without actually talking to the person? Does it break your jaw to admit that you're wrong? Just to open your mouth and admit that you're wrong is so hard, or even to apologize to someone. Do you get angry and offended when someone rebukes you and tells you you're in sin? Are you quick to pass judgment, but slow to inquire and really listen to someone else? Not just in general, but to the people that you love. Do you condone in secret what you preach against in public? The things that if you were all, if we were in a support group right here and you say, what do you not, what's what's going against God? And you're all about naming what those things are, but you are doing those in private. You're a Pharisee. Is every issue black and white and no room for gray? Do you have an answer for everything? You know what's good, you know what's bad, and there's no way in between that anything else can be different. And lastly, do all of your Christian friends, meaning the people you actually do life with, and this is a this is an interesting church to ask this at because on Sunday we hang out with a lot of different types of people, but the people you actually do life with, do they look and act just like you? Do they look and act just like you? The people you do life with on the day-to-day basis. See, owning our sins, admitting our flaws is impossible. In our society, because there's no room for weakness and there's no category for helplessness. But it is the only way we can actually come before God. It's the only way we can actually come before God. And if you do, there's more than enough grace and mercy for you. That's the good news of the gospel that there is mercy and grace for you, but you do have to come before God in brokenness, in weakness. And not just making things up, but actually thinking through, praying through, asking God to reveal to you how you're sinning against him. And then you repent, and there's mercy and grace for you. I mean, the fact that Jesus would justify a tax collector, this traitor of all the Jews who's helping oppressors and getting rich off of it and stealing and living lavish lifestyles in the face of poor hungry Jews and Jesus would justify him just for repenting and seeking mercy I mean can you imagine this guy's life will never be the same it'll never be the same knowing he was forgiven of such great sin him walking down the steps of the temple going to his house I mean imagine what he's thinking Knowing he's not only forgiven, but accepted. That God has forgiven him and accepted him after everything he did. I mean, this man without community, without approval, without self-respect, self without love. His prayer was heard and received by the God of the universe. He's dancing non-stop to his house. His life is totally different. And to share in his joy and his freedom of forgiveness, justified before our God. That's what we all actually long for. We long to know that peace, that love for ourselves. And there's the first step to doing that is repenting, not generally. Because we don't want general forgiveness. We want to know that God forgives us in our trespasses and our sins, what we actually do against Him. So, before communion, I want you to sit and I want you to think before you get up and I want you to ask for mercy. What have you done that's actually separated you from the Father in heaven? What are you running to besides the Father? And you know what? It's okay if you're in a place right now where you can't actually think of anything. But just know you have the qualities of a Pharisee. And I just want to point out that it's a dangerous place to be. Because the Pharisee was not justified. The one who knew his sin and humbly and honestly brought it to God was justified. He received the mercy. So Let the Lord meet us here now as we think and pray about this. So I'm going to pray for us.